We're looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. What we have scheduled here. And I think Paul summed it up really good on what this text would be. Not Peter, but Paul. Peter wrote Peter, but um, Paul said something very close to what this was. I am determined to know nothing among you but Christ. What? Crucified. Proper vision of Christ is He's the crucified one. He's crucified one. Uh, Think of the purest vision, perspective that we can have of the person and work of Christ is found at the cross, the crucified one. Um, Viewing Him suffering, suffering Jesus. And I think you see His deity manifest the most whenever we see Him at the cross. And I don't think there's any place that magnifies His humanity as what the cross does. Uh, How about His work being accomplished? Accomplished, finished. There's nothing as clear as the cross. And so the cross is the most completely revealed manifestation of Christ as far as His glory is concerned. And so what Peter is doing here is uh, he's putting forth quite a doctrinal spread, quite a feast here. Uh, Three times in this text, from 21 through 25, Peter is going to tell us that Christ died, something so simple but so profound, and that the purpose of His death was to enable us to be able to live differently. God's purpose for us is that this, this church or individuals, church come together, is that we're to live like Christ. That's really the purpose. And so, um, we're to live righteously, as Peter will say. And I think Piper put it in the terms of that his unshakable, infinitely compelling commitment (laughs) is to fulfill that purpose in us in the death of his Son. And that's what makes it happen. It's the death of his Son that makes the most biggest purpose of Christ is to make us like Him. His commitment to make it happen is is shown so much in that the, the, there was a sacrifice of the Son. That's what made it happen. So there's going to be basically three statements of purpose here dealing with Christ being crucified, suffering. That's a key word that we've seen in Peter here so far, right? In this text here, in this chapter. And then... God's commitment to make it happen, and it already has happened, at the death of Jesus. And because of that, then that makes us then the ones who are set apart to live righteously and um, to be like Him. Anyway, why don't we uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this evening. Thank You for this uh, beautiful day, beautiful weather You've given us. And we uh, realize that You are the Creator and everything that we have, the uh, the air that we breathe and the food and all the necessities are such a gift from You. And You are a glorious God and uh, a holy God indeed. Thank You for revealing to us who You are through Your Word. And as we talk about the suffering Christ, Your Son who suffered and died on the cross for us, Uh, Tonight, we pray that the Holy Spirit would impact us uh, 
a little bit more about this grand topic of the ages. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 2, and we'll um, kind of start it at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow any steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Boy, that's a, that's a load, isn't it? So Peter gets back onto this topic. He's so practical and all of a sudden he brings into this practicality the grand doctrine, but yet it's still practical because it's shown because of this great example of Christ, this is what has been done for us. Now you remember back in, in verse 21 as we, we read there, just started out, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Now the question is, what have we been called to? What's our calling too? Go back to verse 20. We didn't read 20 tonight. We read it last week. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What have we been called to? Suffering. For what is right suffering for it is right and to patiently endure it to be able to go on through it and what does that do then as far as God is concerned pleases him so now when we think about that and we talked about it last week we are at odds with the world because of this and uh, they're hostile to us with what our beliefs are as a whole you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer for what is right. That's what we've been called to. Because if you've been called to be a Christian, you've been called to be at odds with the world. Most things aren't going to always uh, be what we believe. So he uh, starts off here in 21. You've been called for this purpose since also Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. We're going to first start with the model. Of course, the model or the example is Jesus. And Christ suffered for you, right? Well, He suffered as being the model. And then we go to the next section that's going to be the substitute. He is our substitute. So He suffered as a substitute, didn't He? So we have an example or model. We have a substitute. And then we have the shepherd. He suffered so we could be the sheep underneath the shepherd. Shepherd, guardian. 
kind of interesting. He starts off, <coughs> starts off with this, and he comes down here and says example, and, and uh, uses the word hupogramos, for example. Hupo. Some of you know what hupo means. What is it? Under. Under. Gramos, or grammar, means what? What? Yeah, uh, and, and to even... Writing. writing. Under writing. Okay, when when you were a kid, I bet you every one of you did this. I, I used to like to do it. You take a, a piece of paper over a drawing, and hopefully that paper is really light, you know, that you can see through it. And what do you do? You trace it. So it's something underneath that you actually are tracing over. He's our example. We're to trace uh, who who he is. Um, so Christ is that. He is the standard. He's the example. And I like the next one too, as he says, an example for you to follow, to follow in his what steps. You guys remember the famous picture, the Christian picture, everywhere you go, you know, you'd see them in homes, you know, for Christians, or you'd see them in bookstores, whatever, you know, and uh, you've seen it before, haven't you? You see where Christ's footsteps were at? Footprints is what it's called, footprints, and they were on cards, they were on pictures, they were in in books, Uh, it was one of the uh, favorite for uh, journals, you know, you'd have those footprints, and that's actually pretty good, I, I like that. Because uh, the word in the Greek is iknos, like that, iknos. Iknos, I-C-H-N-O-S, iknos. Don't sound like one of my boys' names. Oh. Kind of put together, right? Yeah. Iknon, right? Iknos. It's... It's actually not a Greek word here. For some reason, it, it got into Hungarian. <laughs> um, it means footprints. Footprints. Um, in fact, it means like tracks. Uh, a line of footprints is what we're talking about. So there's that picture. So he is that, you know, like that tracing. I bet you guys used to do that, didn't you? Yeah. Of course, you know, if you're freehand, you don't need to do that. But, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to do. But, you know, that, that's what he is. He, he's the, the writing under, you know. Or, or he's the, like, the footprints that we're to walk on. We, we're to follow his tracks, his footprints. Because he's on a path. The path is to glory. And the path to glory is through suffering. The pain before the gain. I'm not so sure. I think there's a movie out now kind of related to that, isn't it? Um, anyway, um, that's that's what, you know, Christ heading for glory. We're heading for glory. But to get there, we have to go through this, this suffering in an unrighteous world. So it'll be unjust suffering. It can be that. And, and you remember, you know, who Peter's writing to. So this definitely has to apply to them. Uh, all of us should desire to follow in the steps of Jesus, right? So, the power behind this purpose, the purpose is for us to to suffer so that we'd be like Christ. The power behind it is that Christ suffered 
for us. Christ also suffered for you, as it says in verse 21. Suffered for you on our behalf. On our behalf He suffered. He took our place there. That word for, F-O-R, three-letter word, is really deep and wide. Just a little word is where He was in our behalf, in our place. So he showed Jesus showed his commitment and the Father showed his commitment to bring that purpose to pass and, and the purpose is that we would be like Christ. So something really happened in the death of Christ. I mean something amazing. And he did it for us. And he guarantees success. The success is found there in the cross. That's how we follow his footsteps. So we always have to keep looking back at that cross. Nice to know we have something there that we can look back at. The purpose is that we would live like Christ. That's really what Peter's really pounding in here. What's the power for us? The substitutionary death. There's the power that we have to be able to walk like Christ. Substitutionary death. He died for us to make us like Him. Unjust suffering. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Just a moment. This path to glory. Unjust suffering. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It's Christ and then His own. He was the pioneer. He was the captain, right? He was the leader in, in all of this. Um, and of course, he came. You know, his perfection is that he completed everything that he set out to do. It is finished. He did it through sufferings, but that's and that's how we become that way. And of course, I think Peter is using quite the illustration. How about uh, while you're in Hebrews chapter five, verse eight and nine? Although he was a son, he learned obedience. This is Christ from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. There again, the Hebrew writer is talking about sufferings. Uh, Obedience, living uh, this life in the flesh, the incarnation that Christ had. It wasn't that he wasn't a perfect being, but yet in his incarnation or living like us, you know, in, in, in a body and being, being a human, and still, but He's still God, but He had to learn obedience. He had to go through these things. He had to uh, go through the stuff in life. And then He reached, you know, in the sense of perfection, in the sense that it came to its completion, its fulfillment, as far as time is concerned. And uh, so, He's the source. I like that, the source. The other verse said he was the pioneer, the author of salvation. He's the source of eternal salvation. He's the, the, 
source of that's where all the water flows and everything that we get is coming from him it was it's flowing from the cross so the path to glory is unjust suffering again you know what peter does now he's taking us to the cross isn't he had peter been there well kind of but they actually ran away didn't they but he knew what went on there and and so peter takes us to the cross and what he's going to do is take us back to isaiah chapter 53. That famous chapter. One of the most famous chapters in all the Old Testament. And he draws upon that about the unjust treatment that he had. And of course, in Isaiah 53, great theology there. And of course, you see a a prophecy of exactly what would happen. uh, Let's turn there just for a moment. Like around verse 7. He's going to quote from here and draw conclusions from that to show that he's the suffering servant. That's what Isaiah 53 is about, the suffering servant. In verse 9, this may look familiar here, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. No sin or no violence. There's no deceit and that's just one of the verses that uh, Peter's drawing from here. The Messiah never committed any sin. We know that. Well, that's God, but yet he was living in the human flesh. No deceit. It, it talks about um, really deceit is dealing with sins of the tongue. Anything dealing with the, the tongue, the mouth. And of course, Isaiah talks about that. There wasn't any deceit in his mouth. The tongue sins by consent sin by innuendo, can sin by lying, slandering. There's a whole bunch of different ways that the mouth can be deceiving. But he he had none. He spoke none, didn't get back at anybody. Uh, In in our Peter passage here, in verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's right out of Isaiah, right? And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. Uh, Reviling there is... uh, like abusive language as they're casting insults at him. He didn't get back at him. And, of course, the ultimate, what he did, and we got to this last week, right at the end of verse 23. And this, if he does it, this is what we do. This is how we will be able to go through any kind of suffering. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So if somebody's been mistreated, we'll let God be the judge on that. He'll judge it perfectly every time. Perfect justice. And that's what Jesus did as the Son. He just turned it over to the Father. That's what it actually is insinuating here. He handed it over to the Father. All that they're doing with Him, there He is, there he is you know, being the Son of God. He is God, but in flesh, like to say, well, that that was God. And what Peter, I think, that, that's a good point because what Peter is putting here is saying, no, you can't say that because here's what Jesus did and here's 
why you can do it because he did it and that's where you draw your power from. And so people miss the cross if they try to say, yeah, but, make excuses. It goes back to the cross and, and what he did. And there's that We could draw upon that power to be able to, to do that. That's right. In Isaiah 53, where it talks about uh, the Lamb. How about in verse... uh, Well, let's look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here's our key verse for the moment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Now, this is written 700 years before Christ, right? And we see down to the detail. We know that that's, that's what happened. Nothing, any kind of uh, sin, wickedness, or anything came out of, the, out of his tongue in that sense. And so it's uh, quite an incredible thought. He was uh, like a lamb led to slaughter, innocent. He was just, wasn't he, all the way through. Silent before the shearers. And if you have done something that is a favorable thing and you get almost punished for that, then again, this is where we look at, isn't it? I like that word entrusting. Is entrusting himself right at the end of verse 23 to him who judges righteously. That word entrust means um, to hand over to someone uh, para didami. And it means to take it and just hand over it to somebody so they can keep it. Para didami. P-A-R-A D-I-D-O-M-A-I. Para didami. Hand over so they can keep. He just handed over himself to God. And, and it's in the tense of he kept handing over himself because he was continually being punished and being reviled all throughout that ordeal. And so he kept handing himself over. And of course, we can think of the great line that he said while he was on the cross right at the end. Father, into thy hands I commit thy spirit. Right? So, kept handing himself over. Well, there is the first one. That's all dealing with what? The model. That's the model of suffering. Now we get into the substitute. And he himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the cross. And here we go. There it is. It's what he did. And here it is, us so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
So there's the sense of of his death again, and then here is the reason why. The purpose is, is that we would come to the point of living in righteousness, dying to sin. Um, Leon Morris writes on here, uh, he's not with us anymore, they're great commentators. Some of you are probably familiar with Leon Morris. Wrote some great ones, especially in the Gospels. Um, he writes about redemption and justification and reconciliation, those great big words that we like so much. Now listen to what he says here. Redemption is substitutionary, for it means that Christ paid that price that we could not pay, paid it in our stead, and we go free. Now that's where he's talking about redemption is substitutionary. Then he gets into justification. That interprets our salvation judicially, justification, judge, judicially. And as the New Testament sees it, Christ took our legal liability, took it in our stead. He took liability. Of course, He declares us righteous, so there's justification. We see redemption, substitution. We see reconciliation. That, that's the means of making people to be at one by the taking away of the cause of hostility. In this case, the cause of sin, and Christ removed that cause for us. We could not deal with sin. Leon Morris goes on to say, He could and did, and did it in such a way that it is reckoned to us then he goes on and talks about propitiation. And that points us to the pleasure of God that he was satisfied and the removal of God's wrath from uh, from us. And he did that by Christ bearing the wrath, taking the wrath that should have been on us. We know about that. And he put it on him. So it was our sin which drew this up and it was He who bore it. All of our sin, all of our lifetime sin, each one of us was right there. And He's having to go through that. He took that on. He bore it. Carried the weight. Was there a price to be paid? He paid it. Was there a victory to be won? He won it. Was there a penalty to be put on? And bore it. He did it. Was there a judgment to be faced? He faced it. We will never face that judgment. Aren't you thankful? We'll never have to face the judgment of our sin and wondering whether we're going to be forgiven or not. That's right. Either you will pay for your sin or Christ pays for it. Um, that word for us, it's so valuable. Look in uh, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us, bought us, from the curse of of the law, which condemns us, having become a curse for us. So he took on that curse that we should have had. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. For us. Substitution. So when you see that word, or two words, for us, 
it's dealing with substitutionary atonement. And that is a doctrine that is taken very lightly today or not even discussed, not brought up. Uh, this is so elementary but so enlightening, so refreshing to us constantly. Substitutionary atonement. Let's put up the word penal. Penal substitutionary atonement. Do you hear that in the church today? Penal means there was a penalty. Christ took our penalty. That means there's punishment. Penal is punishment. And a true Arminian, and the reason I say a true Arminian, was that originally when there were Arminians and there have been books written about it, they will say that Christ suffered for us, but he didn't pay the penalty for anybody. And of course, that brings it into the point, he suffered for us as an example. It sounds like what this is saying here, but Peter's also covering the substitutionary atonement and the penal substitutionary atonement as he refers back to Isaiah 53. So a true Arminian would say all he did was that he suffered for us. He didn't really pay for our sins there because they know what that ultimately means. If he paid for our sins, the deal is done. Right? So, therefore, there's nothing else that has to be done. It is finished. Right? But they have to make it know it was just available as he made himself as an example um, you know, for people in in uh, this suffering. But they have to do their part. Right. Right. You don't you don't do anything. It's not about what you That's right. If a Calvinist believes in that he paid for the sins of the believers it makes sense because the payment has been made. There is nothing else to be paid for. We can't pay it. It is done by Him. But if He just made it available for everyone, then the price really doesn't matter. They haven't been paid for or bought. For if they would be, then they would be His. So you can see the dilemma they had. So that's why in way back in the uh, the 17, 1800s, an Arminian would define that as uh, what the atonement was about. It really was just him suffering and not paying the penalty uh, that was due. Spurgeon says this. Want to hear what Spurgeon says? Substitution is the very marrow of the whole Bible, it is the soul of salvation. It is the essence of the gospel. He died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, right? We ought to saturate all our sermons with it for it is the lifeblood of a gospel ministry. He goes on to say, I am incapable of moving one inch away from the old faith, the gospel of substitution, and one thing I do is preach it. Another thing he says, if you put away the doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, you have disemboweled the gospel and torn from it its very heart. He had a way with words, didn't he? When you take substitutionary atonement out, you've just disemboweled it. You've taken the heart out of it. You've taken everything out of it. It's nothing. 
And that's the whole point. That is where this is all at. That's what Peter is talking about here. He's no different than any uh, other religion. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 18 of 1 Peter. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. There's the great exchange again, isn't it? The just one for the unjust. We were unjust. Regardless of what we believed or didn't believe, we were unjust. And He died being the just one. So that He might bring us to God, that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, to endure the penalty of sin, He took on judgment. Took on judgment. People don't like to think about that. That the Father would judge the Son in such a way. The wrath of God being unleashed on His Son. Penal, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. That sounds very bloody. It's pretty tough for people to handle. Hebrews 9.28 But it's all over the Bible. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. When He comes back, it won't uh, be dealing with um, a time of uh, where He's going to be on the cross and suffering. It's a time of glory and judgment on sin to all the sinners. But we eagerly await that time. So, He bore the sins of many. Carried the sins of many. Took on the sins ours. So, there it is. The purpose of God again. He is committed. God the Father, God the Son, committed to make this thing happen so that we can be like Christ. It's all based on the cross. So it's identical to verse 21 as we look here in verse 24. It's kind of doing the same thing, only worded a little bit differently. Uh, I think things are even more explicit here. Uh, Christ's suffering, you think of the agony, being nailed to the cross, dying there in such a horrible way, and His suffering was for us. He bore our sins. It's substitution. So the bottom line is this. Christ takes my sins and and He bore them there or I will. I will bear my sin. Either He paid the penalty for my sin or I'll pay it in hell forever. That's how serious each sin is. It would take an eternity to pay for it. And that's why it's eternal. So He bore the punishment took the punishment for that, satisfied a holy God. So as you think about this and you let it sink in, you don't have to carry your sins. You don't have to be burdened by guilt. You don't have to wake up every morning or go to bed at night with guilt hanging over us. The thing is, what you can do is, as you look at this text or the many texts that's dealing with this,
the commitment of God, the commitment of the Father and the Son that as He uh, bore our sins on the cross. Another verse. Another one. Actually, we're still still there. There's something we have to cover here. In order that we die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the reason. Okay, here's the, here's the theology. Here's what He did. And here's what He is doing with us. It's the same as living to righteousness here. Living to righteous. Make us righteous like His Son. Right? Is that good news? Isn't that good news? You've been declared righteous. To live to righteousness. Dying to sin. It's, there again, it's work at the cross. It not only removes our guilt, but it it not only takes that guilt that's hanging over, but it takes us out of that bondage of sin that we're even living in today. We're no longer in that bondage. The power of sin has been what? Broken. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting here. It doesn't say here that He did this that we might go to heaven. Now, obviously, that's that's part of it, but that's not the reason that what what he's getting at here uh, didn't say that he did this so that we might have peace right and that's a good thing and he didn't even say that we can experience his love which he certainly did and we experience that note this what does he say so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and that's what does happen. That's what's happening now. That's what He's doing. But that's what happened at the cross. That we are dead to sin and alive to Christ or alive to, to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That means a transformation. Transformation from sinners into saints. So He takes us, transforms us, so that we die to sin, even more and more, even in this, you know, this. Right, that's what the suffering is is going on about. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Helps us see that a little more better. So, so the substitutionary work of Christ is that we might depart from sin. That's the idea of die there, to depart from, to uh, totally be extinguished. Sometimes when you see death. You know, people die, but that's just their body, but they go on living. And in this sense right here, it, it, and it's not used, uh, I think it might be the only place it's used in this sense here, that word die. Uh, totally depart from sin. Oh. I think I heard Luther actually today on his radio program uh, kind of explain the death to Adam and Eve, you know, once they the, the fall happened and that their condemnation was now on them, that sort of thing. That that actually he gave he gave them as their natural death of their bodies as a blessing because they wouldn't have to stay in that state forever anymore. I'd never heard it put quite like that, but it was like you know he gave us death as a blessing so that we can be alive with him. Yeah, we don't have to be constantly in this plane. Here, where sin and death pervade. Yeah, how would you like to live forever? Yeah. Just the way we are now. 
Yeah, that's that uh, is a mind blowing thought because it's God in something so evil and so bad, but yet He's still working good in that, isn't He? And that you know, and that sin requires death, and so He took care of that, you know, because they did the, the you know the coverings, and He said no, you know, something has to die, blood has to be shed. All right. And so he took care of that. And of course, we were. We were dead in our sin before. And the cross, when we look at that cross, and it unleashes the very power in us, the power of Christ, that we, we die to sin. And, you know, just in case somebody might think that this is an offer, that we might live to righteousness, right? For our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And we'll get to that next phrase. Some people can say, "Well, it's it's really an offer instead of an achievement." He's making this possible now for everybody or anybody to accept that. Maybe the cross really doesn't secure or guarantee anything, right? When you take a reform view, though, it does. It guarantees salvation for those who are His. Uh, but they might say, it's only an offer. Well, in the next phrase, it gives us the answer to that. For by His wounds, you were healed. By His wounds, you were healed. It doesn't say by His wounds, healing is offered or it's possible you can get healing if is it just a possibility no you were healed in other words the cross is let me use a big word this is a nickel word <laughs> ah maybe a dollar now these days <laughs> efficacious right efficacious efficient it achieves exactly what God had designed for His purpose. He achieved it. The cross doesn't create possibilities. It, it creates new persons, but the work is done there, totally finished. And for his, by His wounds you were healed. Of course, again, where does that come from? Is that an Isaiah 53 passage again? Um, verse 5. Um, Peter is really borrowing from that. Um, as far as the healing, God can heal all He wants at any time, and He does. But in its fullest sense, we know that not everybody is healed, even though you can pray and you really desire it and, and it happens. But in the fullest sense, this hasn't 
happen because we still die and we still suffer. We still get sick. Hopefully not a lot. We don't enjoy that. But the ultimate healing here is we will get brand new bodies. We'll never be sick again. We'll, our bodies will never die. No cells will ever be on the process of dying out. I mean, it's just everything will be life. And so the physical healing for cancer and arthritis and all those things we, we hate to hear that people have to go through, ultimately the cross will accomplish that even. We know the, the you know, in Revelation talks about the tree, you know, of um, we think of the twelve fruits and there's healing in that and uh, of course resurrected bodies. Um, but it's not yet realized in a, in its fullest, right? We we look to that time whenever that really happens um, in its fullest uh, extent. So, He did promise healing and the atonement. But the salvation term here, even more so. And, and as He's going through this whole text, that is His point. He's not just talking about a, um, a time that we're here on earth, a... Uh, uh, a short amount of time healing, but he's talking about in the spiritual sense even further. So there will, there's definitely that promise, but it, it's dealing with uh, even more so in, in the salvation. For by his wounds you were spiritually healed, even. You were saved. You have been saved. You have salvation. It happened. It happened at the cross. So there is the sacrifice or substitutionary, right? We go into the third one. He died to be the shepherd. And ultimately, this is what Peter has in mind. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls the very one who provides, the very one who keeps, the one who pastors us, shepherds us, takes care of us. And that is the ultimate healing as he points to that. This is the third statement. The design and purpose of the cross, right? Uh, Back in verse 21, Christ died so that we would follow in His what? Footsteps. And then we go to verse 24, Christ died so that we would live to righteousness. So following in His footsteps, living to righteousness, and thirdly here, Christ died so that He would bring us from straying to the green shepherds, or green pastures of the the shepherd. (laughs) The green pastures. And, you know, He's a shepherd. He's not a slave master. He's a shepherd. What's a shepherd? The sheep like the shepherd. The shepherd guides. The shepherd feeds. Uh, he doesn't let the sheep stray very far. Sometimes he'll let them go for a little bit, but it won't be real long. And he'll use the rod and the staff when he must. But he provides for them, right? The shepherd is a good shepherd. He protects, and he's always pursuing his sheep when they go out and try to do their little thing, you know, and get lost out there. But as Psalm 23 says, goodness and mercy, right? 
all our days. The Good Shepherd. So that we'd be feeding off of what He's doing. And when you think of shepherd here, you have to think of... um, Well, that's Psalm 23. How does Psalm 23 start out? So you can start off with, The Lord is my shepherd. And, of course, that's talking of deity, isn't it? The Lord is my. He's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You can emphasize each word and the immense thoughts that come across your mind there. Peter says this uh, later in chapter 5. By the way, the word for shepherd there is found in his First Peter 5, which is really pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, that we use in our English. Verse 1 says, Therefore I exhort the elders... And that's talking about the bishops or the leaders of the church, the pastors. Among you is your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, he's used what? Elder so far in verse 1. Now, look, he uses another word. And it's a verb here. Shepherd the flock of God. He's telling the elders to do what? To shepherd them or pastor them. Guide them, protect them, feed them, all that they do. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising what? Oversight. So you have presbyteros, which is Presbyterian. You you think that's what we hear in the English language. And here we get episkopos, which is the Episcopalians took that name. And then you have shepherds. So it's elders in one. Verse two, you get shepherd and... Uh, oversight or bishop. And they're all the same. That's what a pastor is. He's an elder. He's a pastor. He's a bishop. And not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sort of gain. He talks about the shepherds. And then he, he goes on and says, not lording it over those who allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples. It's a good word. Peter's used that before, hasn't he? To the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd. There's under shepherds, but we want that chief shepherd, right? There's the good shepherd in John 10. There's the great shepherd I think in Psalm 24. 25? 24? And here we have the chief shepherd. And so Peter talks about you have returned to the shepherd. You're underneath his leadership. And the word for guardian, the guardian of your souls, you know what that is there? Bishop. He's the pastor, the bishop. He's the bishop of your souls. He's the guardian. The episcopos. Over. Epi means over. Scopus, scope, to see. To oversee. The overseer, bishop, overseers. Now, summing this all up, we're right at the end. Hey, this all started when Peter wanted to say, 
that a Christian should expect to suffer. And you know when he started that out? Back in verse 11, he said, look, you are aliens, what else? And strangers. In what kind of a world? A hostile, evil, sinful world, right? And not only that, you've got fleshly lust waging war against your soul. <laughs> you've got pagan, pagans that are slandering you. Verse 12. Then you have human authority abusing you. And then you have unkind masters. Remember, they were, many of them were slaves. Taking advantage of you. And you're going to suffer. And your suffering is going to be unjust. Not that you even deserve it. So he says this. So what do you do with that? That sounds pretty miserable, doesn't it? Look at Christ. Where do you look at? Look at the cross. Look at the one who's the standard. I'm going to finish this off with a Spurgeon quote. Quote Spurgeon. Hope you excuse me. Sometimes he has a way with words. When the pangs shoot through our body and ghastly death appears in view, people see the patience of the dying Christian. Our infirmities become the black velvet on which the diamond of God's love glitters all the more brightly. Thank God I can suffer. Thank God I can be made the object of shame and content. For in this way, God shall be glorified. What's that? (laughs) He was about everything. Yeah. It's talking about God will use the worst of things that we might have to go through and He'll use that as black velvet and God's glory like a diamond just glitters all over the place. He has shown off the most when we have to go through something that's really unjust to us maybe. Because that's what the Son did. Anyway, that's some of the ideas I guess that Peter has there. I'm sure he has a lot more. We we just probably hit the tip of the iceberg on that. But a lot of great doctrine, but it's real practical what to deal how to deal with things in your lives that are not comfortable and are not right. That's the way it is. Hopefully that'll give us a good perspective on how to handle the things. He planned it, right? As Billy Preston said. That's the way God planned it. <laughs> That's the way God wants it to be. <laughs> he was right on. Oh, how well he really knew what that meant. That's pretty good. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the suffering servant, our very example, our substitute, our shepherd. May everything that we do and go through in this life, may it really truly bring you glory for it is all about you. In your son's name, amen.